Well, greetings again, strangers. I've been a few miles since I saw you last, Tokyo, Japan, and Manila. It reminds me, years ago, my father used to tell the church about his grueling trips, and uh, I was looking down out of the windows and trying to spot Wake Island without much success when we went by because I couldn't see it. I was jammed inside a uh, 747 in a ten-and-one-half-hour trip with about 350 other people, about 40% of whom were Filipino women with babies. And if you were to imagine yourself sitting in this chair where you are right now, about that width is fine, especially for you larger people. And if you had a couple of little arms on either side so you really don't fit too well in the chair, and then there are three abreast and four abreast and three abreast, and you're in one of the three abreast on the aisle. Next to you is a Chinese couple who have a little one-and-a-half-year-old girl who cannot sleep and who is constantly kicking you in the ribs all the way across the Atlantic. Uh, Pacific. I'm sorry, I lost track of which ocean I was crossing. Let me tell you the difference between flying a Grumman Gulfstream II, which I have done all over Australasia, the South Pacific, and landed to Wake Island, Manila, Hong Kong, and Darwin, and so on, and being as if you were seated here in church. Some of you are going to get very tired before I'm through, and I won't speak too long. Uh, if you can imagine ten and one-half hours with a droning noise and unable really to get any exercise, and then children screaming and crying and bawling and do all, all of the other things children do, which uh, sometimes they get airsick, and there are the other functions of the body that have to be taken care of right next to you in the seat. And so uh, there's a difference between going in a private jet airplane with somebody fixing you stroganoff and serving you whatever you wish to drink, sitting at your own typewriter, having a full-length bed to get into, and calling that grueling and what I just experienced in going back and forth to uh, Japan and back to the Philippines. I had a very wonderful visit over there, and I think I'll save a great deal of the details for the articles upcoming in the international news and a series of pictures that we will have from the visit over there. And while we had only about half of the crowd we did down in Jamaica, you have to remember that we're reaching only a fraction of the percentage of the population. The Philippines are predominantly Roman Catholic, perhaps about 96, 97 percent. There are only, according to both the newspaper that I read and another publication and the uh, almanac, uh, less than two million television sets in the entire nation, of which about 1.2 million are in Metro Manila alone. Yet out of those, there are several different channels, and we've only been on for about four weeks uh, by the time I was over there. So. I did tell them that I hoped within about 10 to 11 months at a little better time of the year because the monsoon was just beginning as I got there and it rained every day, uh, that perhaps uh, I would be able to come back in something like April or May of uh, next year, 1989, and have a campaign where we can have even a larger crowd and we can have a lot more time to build up to it. And the people over there were, of course, very receptive and very excited about that. You can get very spoiled in going to Manila if you are visiting with our own brethren because they treat you like you are royalty. They were so glad and so excited and so happy to see me come over there at long last. When you remember that many years ago we got letters from some of those ministers down in Mindanao, uh, the Benitez brothers, and a little later on, as recently as about a year, year and a half or so ago now, Mr. Pike Mirko up in Metro Manila. And here were people who had experienced some of the same heartbreak, the rejection, the rather cruel, aloof, 
brutal treatment from the ministry of the parent organization with which we have had to cope in this country as we have looked over the tear-stained letters that we received in the last ten years and have read of some of the personal stories and histories of people and their experiences. We did not go to the Philippines on radio. We didn't go over there and put the telecast on. We didn't start compiling a mailing list. We had no intention of doing so, and we had no means or no method to accomplish this. But somehow, these tapes of sermons at the feast and here in Tyler find their way from one lady's purse to another one. And then they find their way in an envelope to a friend. And that friend hears them and they say, Oh, wow, I've got a friend that lives over here and they've got to hear this. And somehow, these tapes have found their way all over the world. And they've gotten to South Africa and to England and to France and to West Germany. And, of course, the nations in Africa other than South Africa. We get letters now from West Africa and over in uh, Angola and, I think, perhaps other nations along the Gold Coast and so on. So we were quite surprised when some years ago we got letters from people, including their ministry, who wanted to come with the Church of God International en masse, where whole congregations began to come with us until we had about six congregations over there. And this year in the fall we'll have at least three, and I think perhaps as many as four, uh, smaller festival sites in the Philippines. As you might know, the people over there are quite poor, by and large. There was one gentleman who was on a bus about as long as I was on the airplane, coming from a city up on northern Luzon uh, for about nine hours to get there to visit with us on the Sabbath. I had a Sabbath special meeting with the church, then I had the campaign that afternoon, and then we had a lengthy meeting the next morning with all of the ministry and their wives before I was ready to check out of the hotel and start my journey back. But I hope that you, the next time you pick up the international news and you see the pictures of these people, you will do like I do. Of course, I get to see the glossies and the originals, so I get to take the glass and really study their faces. And that's how I was able to pick Pike Mirto out of a crowd of about 500 people standing at the gate, everybody waving, and I could see who he was immediately when I arrived there. But so that you will know them and you will know a little bit about them, and I think uh, perhaps one of these days we ought to have uh, a little more of a biographical sketch of some of those people and what their lives are like so you will understand. It would be impossible for me to describe conditions in the Philippines for the average person living away from a particularly beautiful part of the city called Makati, which is the only part of Metro Manila which resembles in any manner, shape, or form a uh, western city. And even there, you have to look, uh, you don't look too close, you will see women, as I could see from the top where I was looking down about 12 floors uh, from the hotel window, you could see women actually in a little sluggish creek with clothing in a vacant lot between high-rise buildings with the clothing and sticks on a rock, and they're beating the sticks against the clothing and washing their clothing right there. You would never see that in a downtown city like L.A. or New York. And, uh, of course, when you see the other areas, the slums, and there are many of them, and they extend for miles and miles and miles in Manila, and you realize the grinding poverty that is extant in all third world countries. And I've been to many of them, in many of the Arab countries, and in Australasia, Southeast Asia, in Vietnam, in Bangkok, in Thailand, of course, in Bombay, in India, and now, of course, my third or fourth visit, I forget, to the Philippines. It comes home to you once again the incredible disparity between even the average poor 
in our country and the average poor in these so-called third world countries. You come back to a small town, you say, that's a curb there on the corner, and that's a sidewalk next to it, and that's a fire hydrant, and there are facilities here, and uh, there are public restrooms in that service station. You don't see a pile of garbage with a shoat rooting along in it, maybe some children on the other side of it playing in it. Uh, you don't see ramshackle stones and corrugated metal and cardboard and huts and then the laundry draped over the edge of the wall with people just teeming in this place that uh, you would think has got to be a place where the rag pickers and uh, people who are going through garbage might live. But that is true, not in just this nation I speak of, but in dozens of countries all over the world. Next time you see a travel poster of Rio de Janeiro with a beautiful big mountain there and the gorgeous bay, you ought to take a look, if you ever go to Rio, at the ramshackle shantytown tumbling down the hills above it in this melting pot of one of the filthiest cities on the face of the earth and the incredible poverty of millions of people who are living just exactly like pigs and dogs, and you would not allow your pet poodle to live in the squalor that many of these people are forced to live in and the area in which they're trying to raise their children. You would pick up your dog and say, oh, here, get out of there quick. You'd try to take the dog in and, and clean it up and wash it off because you wouldn't want a dog to live in that kind of poverty. Now, I'm not saying anything at all about the people willing it to be so. I remind you of the choices we heard about in the sermonette. As we were discussing with Bronson at lunch the other day, the difference between some of the ghettos in the United States and the poorer areas, as he was reminding me, because he is able to go into places that you and I cannot go to. There are areas where he can walk along quite freely, less than a 20-minute drive from where we sit right now, that you people in this room wouldn't want to see. You wouldn't want to experience, and indeed you may be afraid to attempt to experience. But we could get in a car, and 20 minutes from now we could be inside ramshackle dwellings that would be every bit as bad as anything I saw in the Philippines with one difference, as Bronson was pointing out to me. Here in this land, those people have a way of escaping that. They can rise above it. They can get out of it. They can have an opportunity for education and for bettering themselves from leaving that squalor and finding honest work and lifting themselves by dint of hard labor, education, and just good old fortitude, out of that kind of poverty. But in these third world countries, they don't have that option. They don't really have a choice. In these island nations of the Central and South Pacific, Melanesia, Micronesia, Polynesia, and Central and South America, and especially in the countries, and that's one thing I take issue with involving some of these religions, which I pointed out to some of our people over there, what has Roman Catholicism done for the Philippines? Why do you see almost globally in Mexico, in Central and South America, and especially in nations such as India, where more than 550 million human beings live, in China, where more than half of the human race abides, these polytheistic religions, and yet they are always hand in glove with the most incredible grinding poverty and squalor and endemic disease that you can begin to imagine. Yet in the Western world of the so-called Judeo-Christian monotheistic religion, you tend to see values which, if you really understood history, 
biblical history, biblical archaeology, the identity of Israel, that man's footprints lead away from the Middle East, you would understand that the concepts of health, of hygiene, of diet, of how to take care of your physical environment, concepts of cleanliness, of neatness, stem from God's intervention in the lives of a race of slaves in ancient Egypt very, very long ago, and are traceable directly to God's laws, the Ten Commandments, the statutes and the judgments that God gave ancient Israel, and without those concepts which are written into law in the Western world, we would not have the benefits we do. There's another part of the story to God promising that through Abraham's seed all nations of the earth would be blessed. Because even materially, and in ways of such as the hygiene, health, and physical cleanliness, and even civic ordinances that have to do with the removal and burial of trash, with the disposing of human and animal bodies, with what is healthful and what is not, uh, we just saw it in a national magazine recently, and it's been on national television lately, uh, the incredible filth being dumped into estuaries, bays, America's river systems, and offshore areas in the continental shelf of the United States, and the fact that our oceans are becoming so terribly polluted. Well, I was dealing with that back in the late 50s and early 1960s. We were doing a whole series of telecasts on air, water, and solid pollution, and warning how bad it was going to get. Thankfully, in Oregon, as an example, even though the Willamette River was utterly polluted. There were practically no fish except what they call rough fish, like uh, suckers and uh, whatever they're called, uh, carp and suckers and so on, living in that river. By strict laws and imposing restrictions on all kinds of factories that were dumping every kind of effluent, and I think even the leaching off of surface water from the spraying of toxic pesticides and chemical herbicides and so on by the farmers, and when it rains, it roars into the rivers, pollutes the fish you know, kills the fish and so on. But in a number of years, within about a decade, they actually began to entice salmon running clear back up toward Eugene, and a lot of the rivers in Oregon were really being cleaned up. So they had made a lot of progress. They made a lot of progress in Lake Michigan. The salmon are back in Lake Michigan. In Lake Erie, made a lot of progress. In some of the rivers up in the Great Lakes region. Now we're seeing it's beginning to go the other way. And I won't belabor that. That isn't what I wanted to talk to you about today. But we should realize the incredible blessings that we have in this nation and should be perhaps, as I can point out as I go along, willing to share those blessings. What is your personal goal, or that is, what is it with which you are concerned that takes up most of your interest, even perhaps a little bit of worry, a lot of thought, preparation, and planning. What, what is it that you have as a goal? All of us, of course, have certain hopes, dreams. We have unspoken goals, things that we would classify as wants or desires. A new home, an add-on to the one we have. A little vacation somewhere for two or three weeks we'd be able to afford in an exotic place. Perhaps a new automobile perhaps a higher salary, more security, getting out of debt. But there are a lot of these material, physical, personal goals that become really something that this is quite enormous in our minds and with which we are preoccupied. Sometimes they are the driving force 
that quite literally energizes everything we do. Our work, our job, everything we do has to do with this particular goal toward which we strive. We may term it comfort or security or happiness or success or all of the above, but these things are important to us. And many of these things, having a fine home, driving a decent automobile that is safe with good tires and good brakes, nothing wrong with that. But let's take a look at it in contrast over in the eighth chapter of the book of Romans and in verse 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. That's not an insult. That's merely the way it is. If we are physical and our minds, after all, are made up of matter, the electrical field of energy that causes what we call thought that is produced by those cells of this fantastic human brain of ours is the only thing that is other than physical about our brain. Our brain has weight, occupies space, and has a certain shape. It's just physical matter. can be destroyed by a bullet or the blow of the head or a fall out of a high building. But there's supposed to be something spiritual going on inside that physical brain. It is not supposed to be merely animalistic or materialistic. They that are after the flesh, that is, carnal, physical, not spiritual, not converted, not begotten of God's Holy Spirit, are concerned about the things of the flesh. They mind, they put their minds upon, they pay attention to, they are worried, concerned about the things of the flesh. But they that are after the Spirit, baptized, converted, have God's Holy Spirit, have their minds on, are concerned about, thinking about, pondering about, praying about the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, absolutely axiomatic. I don't care who you are, whether you're the President of the United States, whether you're a general in the Air Force, whether you're a little washerwoman in Arkansas, whether you're a retiree in a rest home, whether you are a young college student, we are born, we grow, we go to school, we get a job, we get married, we produce children, we get senile, we get old, we get sick, and we die. So it's merely axiomatic. They which are after the flesh, carnally minded, finally end up dead. That's all there is. But to be spiritually minded is life, not only this life to the full, but spiritual eternal life thereafter, and peace. Because the carnal mind is automatically enmity against God. Now, a carnal mind doesn't like being told that, by the way. Carnal minds resent that scripture, which is the clearest proof that scripture is absolutely, beautifully true. I tried to explain this to my own sister, which was a big mistake. Trying to explain to her that saying that a person is carnally minded is not an insult, but she was already insulted before I even began to talk to her about a carnal mind. You know why? because I was making a difference. I was pointing out disparity. I was saying, Dottie, we're different, you and I. This is back about 30 years ago. And long since that mistake, I think, has been forgotten and buried and washed away because we have a very fine relationship today, and I do not any longer try to cram my religion down my sister's throat. We don't even talk about religion, and she knows everything about it. She knows I don't eat pork, believe me, because she was reared in the same home by the same father and went to the same church when I was about 10. Uh, she was 20. I'm giving away her age, but uh, that's all right. Most of you don't know that and don't know her. 
So we cannot cram our religion down someone else's throat. But by the time I tried to explain to her, Dottie, to, to say that you are carnally minded is the same thing as saying that everybody you know and all the Hollywood actors and all the successful people of the world are carnally minded. That's not an insult, but I'd already insulted her. The carnal mind is insulted when they read this scripture. It is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. We have to understand that that is an utter impossibility. The carnal mind does not, of its own volition, have a choice. Almighty God has to reach in and change that carnal mind by beating it down into submission, by shocking it into awareness, by stunning it into some kind of realization, or by piquing its curiosity. In the case of Saul, the destroyer, who was a pompous ass of a man, probably tall in his pharisaical robe, with a coterie of armed soldiers with him, going along, finding addresses, asking neighbors where does so-and-so and such-and-such -and -such live, getting there, banging on the door, dragging people out in the middle of the night, their children screaming and bawling, the wife saying, oh, please don't take my husband and him dragging this man down to the local constabulary, putting him in a prison, and then actually stretching him on a rack and beating him to death. And before he dies, causing him to curse the name of God. You would have found Saul the kind of a man you would have hated if you'd known him as he was going about the business of eradicating that hated Christian religion from among the Jews in his day. But God struck him down, blinded him, and nobody feels more helpless than a man who's so full of ego and pomposity walking along the road, all of a sudden he's blind, then he hears a roaring, thunderous voice, Saul, yes, Lord. You know, God got his attention. I've dealt with that in times past about pagans and heathens and people the likes of Khomeini or whoever we're talking about, some despotic dictator who is more than willing to take the lives of helpless human beings. And God is eventually going to get everybody's attention in the same way. So God struck down Saul and made him willing to listen. Now you read the example of this man who said, I am not fit to be called an apostle, for I persecuted the church. I, who before was a blasphemer and caused men to blaspheme, and I was a blasphemer and injurious, but God forgave me, and so on. But Saul, Paul now, could never forget his roots. I think the greatest example that we see, because Christ was not carnal. Christ was spiritual from birth. Christ is a fantastic, perfect Savior. But Jesus Christ overcame sin from the time of his birth, even as a child with the Holy Spirit poured out without measure. And the Apostle Paul, as he became, you can relate to in a sense that here was a man who shows you the contrast between utter carnality and very complete converted spirituality, a tremendous change that took place. So then, they that are in the flesh, that is, minding the flesh, concerned about the flesh, cannot please God. But you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. And if it does, then your values are going to be completely different. In 2 Timothy 3, we've read this many times, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be, listed first, lovers of their own selves. Let me share with you a concern that I have 
as one of the people here who helps make decisions in the context of either the executive group here in the Home Office, the Board of Trustees of the Church, and or the Ministerial Council. And in our day-to-day -day discussions with Mr. Benny Sharp as the business manager, Mr. Ron Dart, and other people here, if we're trying to select a certain area into which we want to put the telecast, there are a lot of criteria we have to consider. The demographics, the size of the city, the kind of the station, its rating in the market, the amount of money we have to pay. Uh, when I say demographics, we have to understand that, for example, New York has a tremendous Catholic uh, population. It's got a tremendous Jewish population. More Jews live in New greater New York City in the area there than they do in Israel. It has a tremendous Puerto Rican population, which is Roman Catholic. So you have to understand that a program like ours will get a very low response, even in a gigantic metro uh, you know, complex, which is going to be one of the most costly stations you can get on, yet your audience, the audience you're trying to reach, may be smaller than the, same, the audience you're trying to reach in Shreveport. So you've got to consider all of those things. So as we consider this, trying to use the dollars God sends us and that God's people give as their tithes and their offerings, to use them to the maximum effect, it might occur to you from time to time, hey, what are we doing going on television in the Philippines? That is a place of grinding poverty. Those people over there cannot afford to even begin to pay for the telecast in their own area. They can't begin to afford to pay for a tape program or to publish literature put out a magazine or publish brochures or booklets. No way. They can't afford it. Everything we do over there is paid for by American tithe payers with a small little bit of help, and it's very small, from what little bit very, very poor people with a per capita income only a fraction that of most of you, a per capita income on the average much smaller than elderly people on welfare or social security much smaller than the average person on Social Security in this country. So they help all they can, but that help is not sufficient to even begin to accomplish much of a work in the Philippine Islands. Now, if the economics were our criterion, no wise person would place a television program in Manila. Yet, when I sent out that letter, and I talked about this very freely, we have one of our numbers, who I will not name, not to embarrass anybody, nor, on the other hand, to, uh, and I'm sure he would understand this, and he'll hear the tape probably, to uh, perhaps laud and praise someone overly. But, well, I understand how much money $14,000 really is. I have to say that when someone gives a gift of that size, as one of our members did from the greater Dallas-Fort Worth region, and said, this is money that I want to go to help those people in the Philippines, this is what you said it would take to spend for one year to have the telecast on for one year in Manila. And that's what this gentleman did. Then here is an, a man who shall remain unnamed, who is the example of what I want to talk about in this sermon. His priorities were such that he dips that deep. And you're looking at a person, and probably I'm looking at a lot of people, you know, to whom $14,000 would be a very good-sized sum of money. I mean, that's enough for a very substantial down payment 
on a fairly good home, isn't it? So you don't just give $14,000 lightly. You might give $17.20 without too much thought, or $5 or $3 in an offering plate. But $14,000, that shows where this man's heart is. Why? What is there about this gentleman? He doesn't want anything in return. He sees the articles in the international news, never met these people, couldn't speak to them in their tongue. They speak Tagalog. They speak what is called the local Filipino dialect. But he dips into his financial resources and gives to God's church $14,000 and says, I want this to go to help the people in the Philippines. This is the exact opposite of this scripture. Men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous. I'm just talking about the difference in values and the difference in goals. I won't read all of this, but notice in verse 4, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, so people who can actually have these hidden values, who can be thinking only materialistically, can have tremendous love for pleasure, but can be liars and unthankful, fierce, despisers of good people. They can be traitors. Heady meaning egotistic or vain, high-minded, aloof, haughty, contemptuous of others, lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God, yet they can still go to church. They can still have a religious appearance. They can have a form of godliness, but they deny, they deny rather the power thereof. From such, he says, turn away. Luke 24, verse 46 is perhaps the best scripture to tell us a little bit about the goal that God has set before his church. We have read this time and again. In Luke 24, beginning in verse 46, Christ said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and arise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Now, a little later on we can read in uh, Matthew 28 and verse 20, and I won't turn to that. Go you, therefore, into all nations, etc. We're, we're quite familiar with that, but let me turn back to the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis and rehearse our memories a little bit on a man who was told, quote, Get thee out of thy country. Now, if you were told that here in the United States, you knew it were valid from God, and uh, that happens, of course, in a church I know of, and it's broken some people's hearts. Sometimes it's done deliberately by the politicians in control to do precisely that, to put somebody down. Like one gentleman who's getting pretty high in the hierarchy spent a year in the Philippines, Mr. Dean Blackwell. Uh, so when you're in an organization like that, uh, and I'm thankful to hear what Mr. Bronson James said regarding the fact that though we made the invitation, it was his choice, he wasn't ordered down here, and he knows that, and we know it. We wanted him down here for years, made that very, very plain, and finally everything fell together, and here he is, and that's wonderful. But we do not do that. But this gentleman was ordered over there, and he had no choice. It's either that or you're fired. It's exactly the same way in the military. When the colonel calls the sergeant and says, we're transferring you to Wiesbaden, Germany, oh boy, well, he's got a house. He just bought his house down here near Fort Bragg. He's got three little children. Two of them are in school. His wife is pregnant six months long. The Army doesn't care about all of that. They need that guy at his grade with his special talents in a particular tank crew or whatever in West Germany, and so off he goes to West Germany. So we used to draw that analogy, that it merely is an order. But if you think about this from a standpoint of values as to what was important to Abraham 
in contrast as to what is important to you. Where are your roots? What do you own? What is important to you? When I was uh, standing in line to go through customs, I looked at all the people getting aboard that aircraft with me, and they were 90-some percent Filipino with a sprinkling of Chinese and others. I don't know if one out of 30 of those passengers owned a suitcase. Everybody had a big square cardboard box, and sometimes two of them, and sometimes they were sagging and a little rough around the edges, it didn't look like they were going to hold together, wound around with cord and rope, and then the rope tied into making handles, and they would have black grease pencil and have their name on it. And here were just boxes, a long line from here to the front door. I stood in line for about 40, 45 minutes to try to get to the ticket counter, and I was there three or four hours before the flight left, the flight was another two hours late. But here were these cardboard boxes, and everything that these people owned was in that box. They were coming to the United States to try to find work, to live with a relative. They're coming over here, the land of opportunity. And of course, if you go to Los Angeles, well, you don't have to go that far. You go right here in Tyler. We have a growing Chinese and uh, Oriental community in Tyler, and we have a very large Oriental community in Dallas-Fort Worth, many, many tens of thousands now, and we've got hundreds of thousands of them out in Los Angeles, because this still is, for people who are willing to work, the land of opportunity. My brother-in-law, Mr. Tony Hammer, my sister's, uh, my sister, my wife's brother, was going into the office cleaning business over in the Dallas area. And he started out with his wife and his young son and his girls, and they would contract to simply go in at closing time at 6, 7 o'clock in an evening and work until the wee hours with buckets and mops and vacuum cleaners and the tools and the materials that he could begin to buy, and little by little began to earn some money, and then he hired a couple of people to help him, and he hired different people. He'd advertise in the papers, and he'd hire and he'd hire until finally he got tired of the shoddy kind of work and the complaints he was getting and from the inattention to duty and the poor sloppy job. And here was an Oriental couple, and I think they were Vietnamese or Korean. Vietnamese, I believe. A man and his wife. And they were like immigrants who had just fled here from the horror, horrifying thing that had happened in Vietnam. Those people worked, I mean, they cleaned every nook and cranny, and they did such a job that he began to get more work. Well, they had some relatives. And the more money he was making, he hired another couple. And he always wanted to hire couples, the man and the wife, working together. And I forget how many he's got, 20, 30 people. I don't know how many he's got working for him now. But he got more office buildings and got more contracts. And because Americans would not stoop to the kind of task work that was the service-oriented work, and that's true wherever you go in the big hotels and the big cities, you will find that you cannot talk English to most of the maids or the serving people because they're from the Philippines, from Korea, from Taiwan, from China somewhere, and uh, they are the people who are willing to take the servant-class job where most Americans are not. They're looking for a little cushier job and for more money. They're not looking for a minimum wage and just a job and then willing to really work hard at it so that they get not only raises, as Tony Hammer gave these people and does, but bonuses right along with it, because he wants to keep those people. They are valuable to him. They work hard, and he's got a good reputation and a good-going business, and he couldn't get Americans to go to work to help him do that. That's kind of interesting. Well, here's Abram at that time, before he was called Abraham, 
God said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from your family, and from your father's house. The tradition of generations here was washed down the river. All the roots were plucked up. All the possessions were left behind except what he could carry with him. He went into a land he had never seen. It's quite an example. Another example that I think is important is over here in the sixth chapter of the book of Genesis, and I'll just refer to it quickly. God told Noah, Make thee an ark of gopher wood, verse 14, rooms you're to make in the ark, etc. It told him all about how to make it in verse 15 through 21. And it says in verse 22, Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Genesis 12, verse 1, Abraham departed. Noah 6:13 and verse 22, Thus did Noah. Over in Luke 17, Jesus Christ gives an example of a woman who becomes quite famous, but she is not known by name, and that is Lot's wife. He said, and in the context in which he said it, he is dealing with some of the great problems that are to come on this earth at that time. Notice in the 17th chapter of the book of Luke and verse 32, remember Lot's wife, but read up to it. He said, As it was in the day of Noah, verse 26, so also shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, and married wives. Nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with it at all. You must eat. You must drink. Marriage is not wrong. It's a matter of the emphasis. It's a matter that even though they were doing this, that's all they were doing. Their minds were on the material, on the physical, on their lives, their pursuits, their fun, their fun and games, their interests until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also as it was in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. What did I ask at the beginning? Homes. Your life, your future, your children, your job, your business, your success, your happiness, your plans for the fall, your plans for the spring, your next year jaunt somewhere. Everything we're concerned about. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house. Fine clothing, that mink stole that uh, the hubby bought for your 25th anniversary. Your jewelry is in the case. The things that are important to you, things that people have died for, when the house is on fire and they go back inside to try to save it and are overcome with smoke because they couldn't stand to leave without some priceless possession, a possession which in some cases would have withstood the fire like a diamond engagement ring. Don't go back down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Remember Lot's wife. What was unique about Lot's wife? Lived in a wretched, filthy city about like L.A. or San Francisco or Dallas-Fort Worth or Detroit or Los Angeles, or I should have said that, but maybe New York or Bedford-Stuyvesant or Brooklyn or what have you. Lived in a rotten, filthy, dirty, wretched, pornographic city of homosexuals and sodomites and loved it. Just loved it. Lived in a city so obscene that three visitors who were angelic, who were angels, who or two by the time they got there, beg your pardon, there were three originally, and there were two by the time they got to Sodom, came to the door asking if it was Lot's residence, and because they'd asked directions along the way, the rotten perverts are trying to attack them 
and saying, let's grab these men, here's some strangers. And Lot has his own values so twisted and so perverted that he offers his virginal daughters to satiate their bestial lusts and says, here, I've got two daughters. They've never lain with man. They've never known mankind. Take them, but don't beset these strangers. Well, Lot may have known there was something unusual about the strangers, but it's still a fantastic commentary on Lot to show you what his values really were and to what extent the civilization around us affects us and makes us the way we are and pollutes us mentally, morally, and spiritually in the same way we pollute our rivers and bays and estuaries. To what extent has entertainment, books, motion pictures, and television polluted us to the point that our values are pretty deeply rooted in this world and are not really rooted in God's kingdom and the world that is to come? It's a question. So he said, remember Lot's wife. Because even though that was such a hideous place that God burned it in a great nuclear explosion, she looked back with yearning and longing, and of course you know what happened. That was the end of her life. God called our progenitors out of slavery. And the instant they crossed over, after they saw the incredible miracles of God, and they came to an area where the water was not sweet and clear and sky blue, but turgid and muddy and bitter, they began to murmur and to blame Moses and, of course, to blame Aaron. They turned around and said, we want to go straight back to Egypt again. And they said, what are you doing bringing us out here into this wilderness to die? And they said, we want the leeks and the garlics. And, of course, they murmured continually, wanted to go back into slavery. David was called from a sheepfold where all he was was a sheepherder and found himself in a matter of days marching out, laden down with armor that he could scarcely carry, a huge sword about that tall, a great shield he could barely lift, armor clanking on him like one of the knights of old, and he said, this is too big, it doesn't fit, I don't need it, and all of a sudden he is facing the hero, the champion, the greatest, biggest, strongest man of the army of the opposing enemy force of the Philistines, and so instead, with a prayer on his lips and in his heart, he picks up smooth stones from the creek bed and puts them in his slingshot, and you know the rest of the story. What a tremendous change of pulling him from a very comfortable environment with nothing but the sheep and the birds and the wildlife and his pastoral environment, and suddenly here he is standing before the king in the palace and facing a giant in combat. Joseph was sold out of his own family environment into slavery by his own brethren and used as the catalyst to eventually release an entire nation of slaves and to build the nation of Israel. What about the example of Christ himself? The Bible says in the book of Philippians that Jesus Christ emptied himself and became of no estate. He left heaven. Now that's where everybody wants to go. Satan, the devil, wants to go to heaven. He tried to unseat God and get to heaven. He's going to try it once again. He's got all the great religions of the world thinking they're going to get to heaven, not knowing that God is going to come here and that heaven eventually will be headquartered on this earth in the center of the universe. And from there, we will go out and do other greater things, perhaps. But Christ left that wonderful environment of purity, of beauty, of joy, of angelic harmony, of nothing but eternal bliss and happiness of nothing that was dirty or turgid or evil or sullied or 
in any way sinful or evil, and came down to this earth, born of a virgin. When he had it all, he left it all, and came here having nothing, born as a human child, growing up in a very hard world as an occupied power in a family that was not all that well-to-do, and came down here to save all of mankind. The examples that I'm giving you are examples of pioneers, of people who left what they had, home, family, roots, friends, money, lands, everything that was important to them, and went to a faraway place for a very, very great purpose. I was telling the brethren over in Manila that the fruit of our labors will not really be seen until the beginning of the Great Tribulation. I said the fruit of our labors is depicted more in the seventh chapter of the book of Revelation, where you see the 144,000 and a vast innumerable multitude. And that multitude includes you people in the Philippines. It includes Gentiles. They are primarily of Malay stock, with mixtures of others of the islands in the vicinity. But Malay is a race of people going all the way up into Malaysia, the Malayan Peninsula, and you can see it in their faces a little bit of admixture in some cases of Spanish, some of American, because we've been over there since the Spanish-American War. And, of course, it is a melting pot, but Malay is the basic racial stock. As I was telling them, the effect of the Great Tribulation they're going to feel is from their north. It will not be the same as the United States, although our western half and, indeed, our economy and a great deal is going to be affected by the Japanese in the future. But the Japanese are going to loom large as a very important factor in the life of the people in the Philippines, and of course they're looking at that and aware of it from a prophetic standpoint, where we're more concerned perhaps about a coming United States of Europe. So I explained that in those Gentile third world countries there will be a vast numberless multitude depicted in the seventh chapter of Revelation who are going to receive salvation. The reason I did this it was in connection with a little bit of a lecture on the subject of doctrinal differences, of how people can leave the church, they can posture, they can get all political and upset and excited about a slight little doctrinal misunderstanding. And yet those who will come in, as Christ said, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Those who will come in, who will come to repentance at the beginning of the Great Tribulation, will not have observed a single Feast of Tabernacles in their lifetime will never have known about the weekly Sabbath until the time when they were really converted. They will be just like Saul, although he was a Jew and knew about the Sabbath, who was going about their own daily way of life with their bitterness and hatred and ego and jealousy, and all of a sudden some great events occur. Their nation is being destroyed around them, and millions are dying, and they begin to realize this voice they heard way back when, that they heard repetitiously, that they've heard about saying it was going to happen, was right after all, and it is happening, and they're going to begin to call out to God at that time, and God is going to hear them, they're going to repent and be converted. Now let's turn to a concluding scripture over in Ezekiel, the ninth chapter, where I think you will see this work portrayed a little bit. Ezekiel, the ninth chapter, picks up after these terrible abominations that God's people are seen doing in the eighth chapter, where Easter is pictured where it shows people with their backs to the temple, bowing as the sun rises in the east, and it shows this altar and the image that is the image that provokes God to jealousy. It shows the hot cross buns and the whole thing. 
And he says, these are horrible abominations. The sunrise service is going on in verse 16. They worship the sun toward the east. That's when it's in its rising. And then he said, have you seen this? Verse 17 of chapter 8, O son of man, is it a light thing to the house of Judah that they commit the abominations that they commit here? They have filled the land with violence and have returned to provoke me to anger. And lo, they put the branch to their nose. It actually should read the stock to my nose, the original says, meaning their idols. Therefore I will deal in fury, mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity, and though they cry in mine ears with a loud voice, yet will I not hear them. He cried also in mine ears with a loud voice, saying, Cause them that have charge over the city to draw near, even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. So in this vision he sees the entire race of Israel as if it is right there at the temple where all of these horrible abominations are going on. And behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lieth toward the north, every man with a slaughter weapon in his hand, like a big machete, a gigantic two-handed sword. And one man among them was clothed with linen, the garment of a priest, a person who was sent with a message, with a writer's inkhorn by his side. That writer's inkhorn is symbolic of a method by which God separates his people from all of those who are being saved for this time of slaughter. And they went in and stood beside the brazen altar. And the glory of the God of Israel was gone up from the cherub, whereupon he was, to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed with linen, which had the writer's inkhorn by his side. And the Eternal said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and cry for all the abominations that are done in the midst thereof. What are their values? They are as patriotic, actually more so, than any other people. Because what they see happening to their fair land so hurts them that they are able to have a genuine emotional reaction. They find themselves like that when they see television and they see the crime and the murder and the child molestation and the pornography and all of the filth that goes on all of the sin that destroys lives and families around them. They sigh and they cry. Have you had that experience? Does sometimes in the middle of your breakfast, the morning television news make you get up and leave your breakfast there? You cannot even stand to eat it because of the horrors that you've seen? Do you hear of things happening to other people and actually pray, as Jesus said, when you pray, pray in this manner, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, Thy kingdom come. The first request you make after you hallow his name and address him is that his kingdom will come to replace the governments of this earth. So he is to make a mark. What is that mark? It's the opposite of the mark of the beast. It is the identifying sign by which God knows his own people. Read of that sign in the 31st chapter of Exodus. The only sign that God ever set between himself and his people. A mark upon the foreheads symbolizing not only acceptance of God's law, of his way of life, of his weekly Sabbath, but conversion and the receiving of his Holy Spirit, set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that shall be done in the midst thereof. And to the others he said in mine hearing, Go you after him through the city and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have you pity. Slay utterly, old and young, little sixteen-year-old girls, and little children, and babies, and women, but come not near 
any man upon whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. Now, I will not belabor the issue, because that is very tough stuff. I would say that that is above the ability of many people in this room, without a lot of mind conditioning, a lot of understanding of God's will, and a lot of understanding of the incredible practices of whole societies on this earth to take. You could be tempted in reading that scripture to get angry at God. You can say, how can anybody slay a child? But if you could be standing at a temple before a throng of 10,000 screaming savages watching them cleave the chest of a young virgin asunder and eat a human heart, and you could see the abominable practices of people that have taken those same precious children and thrown them into a fire to a pagan god called Dagon, when you understand what is being put into the minds of these millions of people in Asia, what is being taught the people in Japan and China and Malaysia and Indonesia and the Philippines about the United States of America, is it enough, asked the article in Asia Week, as they show a picture of the Khomeini, who has now said that he is willing to talk and apparently, allegedly, is on his deathbed, now that apparently more than one million have died, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 year old boys on both sides of a long border between Iraq and Iran have gone out there back and forth. It told about that one tidal wave of attacking Iranian soldiers running into machine guns, mortars, and rockets of the Iraqis, and at one portion of the Shat al-Arab, which is the confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates River that empties into the Gulf, and how they were just stacked up so deep you couldn't walk over the bodies. These are young men just like your sons and mine. They ought to have an opportunity for life and for happiness, but they were sacrificed on the altar of the lust of an old bearded guru sitting over there with his ego and his vanity called the Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini. People like that ought to be killed. The people they produce in the factory, the demented perversion of their own minds and their institutions, their educational, cultural, and religious systems are only going to have one solution, to be eradicated from the face of the earth and to be resurrected and to be told what is true and right and good and beautiful. There is no solution. We cannot go over there and educate half of the human race in China. We can't go over there and eradicate anti-Americanism from Japan, Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines from Brunei and Borneo, from every other third world country, from Mexico all the way to the tip of Tierra del Fuego, and avert in some manner, shape, or form the rise of the third world nations that are finally going to do us in. We can't do it. Our task in the Church of God, and we call ourselves the Church of God, comma, international, is to preach the gospel which is the good news of the coming government of Almighty God, as well as an invitation to repent, to have a place of safety which may be right in our own home. It may be in Mindanao in the Philippines, or Dagupan, or Zamboagan del Norte. It may be Cagayan. It may be Metro Manila. But wherever it is, as it says in Psalm 91, thousands can fall at our left or our right, and God will see that no plague comes nigh our dwelling. Our job is the job of the man with the writer's inkhorn to go through the midst of these nations as if it were making a mark 
on those whom God is trying desperately to save. If you were a man that had a family of six, and you came around the corner to your home and saw blaze and flames coming out of your upstairs window, how many of those children would you want to save? Only one? Would you want to save two of them? Wouldn't you try desperately to save them all? The Apostle Paul said that he became all things to all men, quote, that I might by all means save some. If your values are American values, if they are Texas values, if they are Tyler, Texas values, roots, possessions, concerns, but you don't care about your brethren in the Philippines or the people we can reach in other nations, you have the wrong set of values. But if you truly care, if you are along with these pioneers of history of whom we have read, one who is concerned and who does want to see the work of God go into other nations and reach these people in time, then perhaps you too will be there on that translucent sea of glass when Jesus Christ returns.